Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. I'm heading off this week to do something I never thought I would have to do. I'll be giving the eulogies at the family funeral and also the open memorial service of a dear friend and sister in Christ, and someone who was almost like a sister to me. I never thought that I would have to do it because she was young and vibrant and full of life. She was healthy and active and a joy to be around. And yet, here we are, paying our respects and remembering and celebrating the memory of who she was. And in anticipation, I'm sure there'll be a lot of tears and sadness and a heaviness at the loss of her as all her friends and loved ones gather and she's the only one missing. And it's times like these that many wrestle with questions. Lord, why her? She was so young. Or Lord, why is she gone if you could have stepped in and helped? Or if God exists, then why do bad things happen to good people? In the sea of mourners this week, I anticipate those questions will be on the hearts and minds of at least a few gathered there. Death is not something we were designed to navigate. God placed mankind on this earth without death as a part of the picture. It was not written to our coding. There was no algorithm placed within us to deal with it. And so when the biggest mistake of all history happened and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and broke the one command that God in his love had asked them to obey, and the day that they ate of it, we all died. Death shattered this pristine creation, and generations later, we still face it, no one able to avoid it. And yet, as often as it happened on this earth, and as familiar as it has become, as calm as, as it is for us, each and every one of us to eventually face it and deal with it, we never quite know how to deal with it, or experience it, or move on from it. In the software makeup of who we are as people, we never got the update, the new iOS. So we try to make life work after the loss of someone we care for dies and find ways to continue on, but never fully recovering. And while we wrestle with death, and I'm sad to give the eulogy at the funeral of my friend this week, and though I know there will be deep mourning and grief over the loss of her, there is hope even in this disappointing death because my friend, she knew Jesus. And for the believer and the follower of Christ, death means something else. It's not the end, not the final disappointing blow. It's the end of life in the here and now. But as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We sorrow at the loss and death, but there is hope in the equation of the death for those forgiven in Jesus. Death does not have the final word. Paul too knew this. Paul the Apostle is uncertain about his own future. He's under house arrest awaiting trial in Rome. While persecution was not yet at its heyday for those first century believers like Paul, a guilty verdict could mean the end of Paul. And those who proclaimed the gospel were being met with increasing adversity and standing up to speak of Jesus' death and resurrection could potentially seal you with a similar fate. There were questions and concerns by many, perhaps pleading with Paul to lay low or pipe down or keep a low profile. But as we saw last week, Paul knew that in all the hard things he had been through, that God was using them to further the gospel, even the trials and hardships. People were hearing about Jesus not in spite of the hard things Paul experienced, but because of those things. Even the palace guards, Caesar's own guards, were turning to Christ, and it brought Paul joy that no matter what happened to them, 
that God would work all those things for good, for the good of spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a holy God came to die for an unholy people, rising from the dead to set us free from sin and death, so we might be restored to a relationship with him. Well, in this episode, Paul is frank about it. He admits he doesn't know what is yet to come, but he trusts the Lord, come what may. He was surrendered, okay with allowing Jesus to call the shots and do whatever he needed to do to use Paul for eternal purposes and for the glory of God. Because whether he lives or dies, Paul knew he was the Lord's. And living for Christ or dying from Christ, that was his sole purpose. We get started today in first in Philippians chapter 1 verse 19. Paul writes in verses 19 through 21, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We finished last time with Paul mentioning that not everyone had the right motives in sharing Jesus, but that Paul was just happy that Jesus was being preached. And with that in mind, he writes what we read today. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What is the this that Paul was talking about? It's the purpose and goal of spreading the gospel. Somehow, in that uncertain and precarious situation of awaiting trial in Rome, Paul knew that God was going to deliver him because there was more gospel to be preached, more lost to be found, too much work to be done, and staying in prison, well, ain't nobody got time for that. As we saw last season when we looked at Ephesians, Paul called himself the prisoner of the Lord. He saw his trials and time in prison merely as a job assignment a work trip, something that his boss had set out for him. And though the threat was real and the future uncertain from a legal standpoint, Paul knew that he wasn't done yet, that this, this need for Christ to be preached, that he would be released at some point. And history tells us that Paul was released at some point for a short time, only to be apprehended again later. And at that point, there was no glorious second release, but a martyr's death awaited Paul. But that was later. For now, Paul believed by the Spirit that a release was imminent. And how did he believe that that would come? That deliverance, he says in verse 19, would come through their prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. While Paul was in prison, these saints in Philippi partnered with him in prayer, taking to heart what the writer of Hebrews exhorted them. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. While they were miles away, safe in their own homes in Philippi, Paul asked them to pray for him in this situation. Pray that God would deliver him to be free once more to bring the name of Jesus to those who needed to hear. Now, there was precedence for this request. In Acts chapter 12, Herod the king had stretched out his hand to harass the church, killing James, one of the apostles. And when he saw that the Jews were pleased by this action, he arrested Peter too, intending to make Peter the next martyr. There Peter was during the days of unleavened bread. That's the same season on the calendar when his Lord had been arrested, tried, and put to death. And he's chained between four squads of soldiers. I mean, security is tight. Herod is determined to see this execution through. And verse 5 of Acts 12 tells us, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. 
They were having 24-7 prayer meeting or prayer chain meetings, seeking God's mercies to have Peter released. The night before Peter is to die, Peter is bound with two chains between two soldiers with guards before the doors, keeping the prison, and we're told in Acts. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie in your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real and thought that he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord was sent, has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod for, and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. How amazing is that? Peter, your time is not up. There's more work to do. And the Lord superseded all else to preserve Peter's life. So Peter comes to his senses, now a free man, and he goes to the house of Mary, John Mark's mother, where it tells us many were gathered together praying. The church was meeting to pray. It was the 11th hour. Peter was to be executed the next day, and they prayed. The next thing you know, Peter's at the gate. In fact, Peter literally knocks at the gate and a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Imagine this, knock, knock, who's there? Peter, Peter who? I mean, she doesn't believe it. Peter's in prison, right? So she goes and tells the group, interrupting the prayer time, uh, someone's knocking and he says, it's Peter. Well, they don't believe her. They say it must be his angel or something. And they finally go check because the dude is still outside knocking this whole entire time. And sure enough, Peter has been delivered. So when Paul here in Philippians tells them to pray for his deliverance, there is precedence for this. Something to consider in light of this. Our times are in God's hands. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Peter was set to be put to death by Herod, but the Lord said, nope, his time is not yet. The Bible seems to hint that our days are numbered and that God is privy to that information. Psalm 139 verse 16 in the ESV version says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. As if our lifespan may be seen in, in advance by the Lord, and each day something that has been recorded and tallied even before we get started. Job is reflecting on his own fate, and he says this in Job 14. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. What an intriguing thought, a determined number of days, the number of our months with him, limits appointed that we cannot pass or extend beyond. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 27, I quote from the ESV, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? An appointed time, one we can delay, one that we can't delay or prolong. Even in Revelation, when the fifth trumpet blows and the torment of locusts is so bad that people want to end it all, we read, In those days men will seek death and they will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. They won't be able to die. It's not their time yet. First of all, in light of those scriptures, this reminds me that every day has a purpose. As a teacher, one question that has driven me crazy through the years is when students ask me when they come into class, Mr. Gary, are we doing anything today? Yes, of course you are. It's not like they showed up and I was thinking, oh shoot, they're here again? 
I wish I would have known so I could have prepared something. No, I have lesson plans and learning goals and targets and only a certain number of days to get through them in the semester. You bet we have something to do and I'll probably give you homework too. I would say to them, slightly irritated sometimes, that I had no plans to waste their time nor my time, so they better bring it. Are we doing anything today? How many of us live our lives, though, as if there were no purpose? Are we doing anything today? Just kind of taking things as they come and floating through life, looking back on a day or a week or a season with nothing to show for it. It's like when you ask your kids, what did you do today? And they answer, nothing. They likely did something, but we answer God sometimes in that same way. I did nothing. There was no purpose, at least not eternal. But secondly, back to those scriptures about the numbers of our days, could it be that there is an appointed day for us to die? That God in his sovereignty knows when that day will come, something that we have no say in. I've actually wondered this a lot in the last year in light of COVID. We've done so much to protect and to preserve and still seen people die from this virus, something we tried hard to avoid. Even healthy people that should have survived, young people, children. And while the numbers were not on par with what early predictions were, there was still death and lots of it. And while my heart breaks for each and every one of those who, who lost loved ones in this season, I'm left to wonder, was it their appointed time? Had COVID not been in the news, would those same individuals still have met their maker anyway? albeit by other means, whether it had been an accident or a stroke or, or some other unplanned, unexpected death, or a quick spreading cancer like the one that took my friend sooner than any of us ever expected. Were the numbers of deaths in 2020 any greater than God had anticipated? Does he look back on the records of 2020 and wish he had been better prepared for the influx of those coming to the pearly gates? Was he thankful he had written their dates in his book and pencil because he had to go back and erase and change the expiration dates of some because COVID kind of messed things up? Or was COVID just another potential means to bring those home before him whose days were appointed? If anything, COVID definitely got us all to think again about mortality, something God says we are wise to do, Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Paul asks the church to pray because he is confident it is not yet his time. And if God opens those prison doors, Paul has one goal in mind. He's going to go right back out and do the same thing that got him in trouble in the first place, with increased boldness to do so. He says in verses 20 and 21 of Philippians 1, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was sold out for Christ, desiring only that God would be magnified through him. That word magnified, it's the Greek word megalino or megalino. It means to enlarge, to make great. We have the word mega in that root. It's to supersize it. I picture a magnifying glass. Holding up makes whatever you view much bigger than you saw it to be before. I picture a child using that magnifying glass to look at a bug on a blade of grass or a Sherlock Holmes enlarging the slightest shred of evidence that at first might have been overlooked. The magnifying glass enlarging something, bringing it into focus bigger than it was before. And Paul's desire was that Christ would be magnified in him, that others would see Jesus bigger than they had before with Paul's own life and trials and service as the lens to bring about that magnification, no matter what that meant whether by life or death. 
Wow, what a statement. Paul didn't care what the Lord did with his life as long as it magnified Christ, made Christ more seen and more apparent in this world. That's the heart of a true surrendered servant saying, my life is not my own Lord, use it however you choose. I think of Bethany Hamilton, the soul surfer, who at 13 years old had her life changed forever. An avid surfer on Kauai, her surf session that day was interrupted by a shark, losing her arm and all her dreams potentially with it. But being a young woman of faith, she had seen she has seen Christ magnified through her body, speaking and sharing her story and her faith with millions around the world. I imagine young Bethany didn't ask the Lord that morning in her devotions to make that happen. But Jesus has truly been magnified through all that took place as she pressed into him and embraced his call on her life, going on to surf professionally, winning her first professional serving title just two years after her accident. Today, a wife and mother and inspiration to many with her unstoppable life courses and her beautifully flawed retreats, she's told people, I lost my arm, but I wouldn't change it. And I had a sense of peace after the attack. Faith helped me through. Adult me is like, whoa, how did I do that? It was a childlike faith. One that trusts God and says, here I am, Lord, use me. And God has a whole slew of magnifying lenses he can use to magnify himself through the lens of our lives. Be that tragedy and loss or success and blessing or difficulties and trials or prosperity and promise or isolation and separation or popularity and promotion. Magnifying him is our purpose. What lens is God holding up to your life right now? Seek that he would be magnified. And even if it is trying, declare as Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. May we say, Lord, just be magnified. That is all that I ask. We can have many purposes for which we are seeking to live, success or happiness or notoriety or comfort. But Paul had come down to one purpose. It was that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as he was alive, as long as God saw fit to keep him on this earth, it was all about Christ. Each day to live was Christ, with Paul asking, Today, Lord, what is your purpose for me? How can I live that I might magnify you? Lord, if I'm still alive, how can I live for Christ? Preparing this podcast, I was driving to work the other morning, listening to Christian radio on Air One, and an Elevation worship song came on that I have heard a thousand times. But that morning was the first time I heard the words honestly. In the song, My Testimony, they sing, If I'm not dead yet, you're not done. Greater things have yet to come. Repeating it over and over again, If I'm not dead yet, you're not done. My life. It still has a purpose in Christ. What hope this brings, what calling, what motivation, what responsibility. To live is Christ. It's all about him. And on the flip side of that, whenever or however the Lord saw fit to orchestrate his death, Paul saw it as gain. I mean, Paul had cheated death so many times. In 2 Corinthians 11, he mentioned his trials, the scourgings five times, the beatings with rods three times, the stoning once, three shipwrecks at least. And he said, in stripes or beatings and scourgings and whippings above measure, he had lost count. In prisons, more frequently in deaths often. 
like in Lystra and Derbe in Acts 14, when the envious Jews came to the town and stirred up and persuaded the multitudes and they stoned him and drug him out of town thinking that he was dead. I mean, maybe they checked his pulse, his breathing, but they were convinced. Just toss him out by the curb. He's gone for sure. But it was not Paul's time yet. And like a cat with nine lives, the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and he went back into the city. In deaths often, Paul said. I wonder if he felt cheated out of those each of those times, almost in heaven, and yet called back down to finish his time here. Did Paul feel that disappointment each time? Because for Paul to die was gain. It was a plus. It was an upgrade. Now, one thing I need to point out here is that for Paul to die was gain. He looked forward to it. It was full of hope. But this is not a blanket statement for all of mankind. Death is not hopeful for every single one because many have not come and repented before Jesus Christ. It pains me sometimes to hear people speak of death as this blanketed paradise or blissful state that awaits everyone saying that they've met the man upstairs or they've gone to a better place or or that at least they're not suffering anymore. Well, that's true for the believer because of the promise of Jesus and what he has done for them. It's not true for every single person. For the wicked, death begins an eternity of suffering. It's not a very popular thing to talk about in contemporary society. And the doctrine of hell, though, is a very vital part of the Bible. At death, all who have lived in rebellion to God will enter a spirit state characterized by pains, trouble, and sorrow. For example, Psalm 116 verse 3 says, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. In Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Also there in Matthew 22, verse 3, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can see in Scripture, not everyone who faces death finds it to be a place of gain like Paul did. Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what Paul was looking forward to, eternal life. But for those who die apart from Jesus Christ, it's eternal death, eternal suffering. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Death really is that final moment where if we have rejected God for all of our life, then he confirms that and rejects us for all of eternity. And Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What a horrible place to be. You know, one cannot live wrong and die right. After death, there's no opportunity for repentance or salvation. That needs to be taken care of now. That's the accounts that need to be settled now. For anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old man is gone. The new has come. And if we repent and come to him and believe that God himself came and died in our place on a cross and we receive that forgiveness and repent and say that we know that we're deserving of hell. We know that we're deserving to be separated from him forever. If we're willing to humble ourselves and be broken in that sin, then Jesus will come. 
he will forgive us. And death is not something to fear, but death is that reunion with God as we enter into that eternal state. And we can say with confidence, like Paul could, for me to live as Christ and to die is truly gain. So Paul is conflicted because he personally wants to be with Jesus and he would jump at the chance to be with him, but he is committed to seeing his life be used fully to magnify Christ. So he writes in verses 22 through 26, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He knows that if he sticks around, the Lord will use him. The gospel will be preached, people will be saved, truth will be defended, the saints will be equipped and edified. Heck, the New Testament will be written, or at least large portions of it. And selfishly, Paul just wants to pack up and go home to be with Jesus. It's far better, he says. And he's hard-pressed between these two things, to stay or go. The King James Version says, I am in a strait betwixt two. The Greek is syneko. It means to press on every side like of a besieged city with the enemy forces pressing in from every side, or of a strait that forces a ship into a narrow channel, or of a cattle squeeze that pushes in on each side, forcing the beast into a position where it cannot move so the farmer can administer medication, or it can mean to hold fast, to lock up as of a prisoner. Paul wanted to be free, to go and be with Jesus. It was far better, not even comparable, he was truly heavenly minded, not bound to this earth or the things of this world. Jesus warned us of being too attached to this world. He who loves his life will lose it, he said, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And John wrote in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Paul loved the father and to die and be with him was much better now, taking his own life was not an option for Paul, since he saw that the Lord was sovereign over his days, that as long as he lived, he had a purpose. And though he longed for Jesus, he wasn't confident he was sticking around a bit more because others needed it. He was confident, sorry, because others needed it. Paul was committed to serving Jesus here or there, and in that, committed to give his life for others. For Paul, he had already died to himself, to his own life. And now he was living for God. To live is Christ. As we saw in season one, Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Since Paul had ceased to live, he was free to live for Jesus, something he anticipated he would stick around for. With that in mind, Paul gives them some advice as he finishes the chapter in verses 27 through 30. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. 
For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul is speaking from experience. He encourages them to live lives worthy of the gospel. An oxymoron of sorts, since none of us is worthy. No, not one. And that is precisely the message of the gospel. Unworthy mankind given over to sin. Jesus dying in our place, perfect, sinless, defeating the power of sin and death so that we might live. That is good news. That is the gospel. And Paul tells them to live worthy of this. May you know you are living on borrowed time. Live for the glory of God. Fulfill your purpose. Paul encouraged them to unity, to have one spirit, because living for Christ sets us in opposition to the course of this world that encourages us, a world that encourages us to live for self, to look out for number one, to live for the temporal. He who has the most toys wins, according to them. So he encourages them to stand united with those living for the same purpose. And even when the opposition grows, as it was ever increasing for Paul in the early church, and it is for us as well, that even those trials would be proof that they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Paul putting it in perspective as he closes out the chapter with, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. God doesn't promise us smooth sailing. The gospel message that says, pray to receive Jesus, it will make your life all butterflies and unicorns. It's not quite that accurate. Yes, we are blessed in this life by knowing Jesus but we've been guaranteed challenges, even sufferings, for his sake. It is purposed for the followers of Christ. Jesus had experienced it. Paul had experienced it. They would experience it. And it shouldn't surprise us when we experience it as well. But it's a small price to pay for all that we have been given. And though it can be a challenge, we press on. To live as Christ and to die as gain. The best awaits us still. In Christ, we live life with a different purpose, and we face death from a different perspective. Paul said for him, death was far better. It was full of hope and promise, and that there was no fear in death. As I head to the funeral this week for my friend who passed away, it makes you think about things. For my friend, as her illness progressed, doctors said her chances were slim, that she would need a miracle to beat her cancer. And she said, well, I want to be that miracle. And many prayed and hoped that that miracle would come, that God would be magnified through a supernatural, divine healing. And many of us watched from a distance, asking the Lord for that miracle. And there were glimmers of hope. As my friend's sister wrote in a blog post, she said, At noon today, while she was sleeping, she flatlined. No oxygen to her brain. She was gone. Two minutes, she had no heart rate and no breath. We called all the family in to say goodbye. My dad reached for her hand and suddenly she took a breath. We thought we were seeing things. The nurses had already turned off the monitor and the staff was waiting around to call the time of death. But our sister had other plans. And she took another breath and then another. Then she opened her eyes and said, I'm not done fighting. We didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. It wasn't her time yet. And for whatever reason, God sent her back. And it wasn't long just for another day, perhaps for some final moments or conversations or closure. But a day later, the Lord said her time was up. And he took her home. 
And yet, even when we wrestle with God's purposes in our lives, whether it be suffering or death, God is still magnified when we are his children. And while in loss and disappointment, things may be out of focus, like a microscope in a science lab, the lens will be calibrated and adjusted. So eventually we might see everything in focus and magnified, even if that moment of clarity finally comes when we step into his presence, his presence which awaits us. That is his plan. That is his purpose for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in whatever it is you face today and whatever his purpose is for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.